Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week on the podcast, we spoke with Dr. Paul Engels, a trauma surgeon from McMaster University. We got into some pretty detailed discussions around trauma training specifically, but more broadly about how we define what a resident should or should not be able to do at the end of their training. We'd love to hear your thoughts. What should general surgeons be able to do with regards to trauma? Send us your thoughts at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJ Surge. Where did you grow up and where did you do your training? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me uh, on the uh, podcast. Uh, it's uh, it's This is a really great program that you guys have, and it's a pleasure to be invited to participate in it. Um, I uh, actually uh, grew up in Calgary, so I'm a Calgary boy, um, and uh, I uh, spent uh, my high school and undergrad there, and uh, that's when I uh, traveled to um, uh, Southwestern Ontario uh, to do my uh, medical degree at the University of uh, Western Ontario. Uh, but the draw for Alberta was very strong, so I went back to Edmonton this time uh, for some of my training, um, and I did my uh, general surgery residency uh, at the University of Alberta, and then I stayed on for another two years and completed a critical care fellowship, and then went back to Ontario, uh, this time to Toronto, uh, where I did a, a year fellowship in trauma and acute care surgery at Sunnybrook uh, Hospital University, Toronto. And then returned again uh, to Alberta, um, to Edmonton at the Royal Alexandria Hospital, where I worked for a couple of years there um, with some really great uh, colleagues and mentors. And then I went back to Southwestern Ontario uh, to Hamilton, um, where I've been here since, I guess, about uh, 2013. Um, and I practice uh, trauma surgery, acute care surgery, general surgery, and uh, critical care. What, what drew you to trauma surgery? Because that's a what you've ultimately chosen as your, your subspecialty in your career. I think interestingly enough, I did my general surgery um, and I was first drawn to critical care. Um, and so that is what drew me into that. And then I think from there, I really um, kind of solidified my um, interest in uh, like acute care, both medical uh, critical care and surgical care. And and obviously trauma is kind of at the, uh, the tip of the spear on that. So in many ways, I'm... Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to admit I'm a adrenaline junkie, but it probably appears that way um, when you boil it down. So I, I think a lot of us, if not all of us, can can relate to that, uh, Paul. So um, we certainly identify with it anyway. You, you know, one of the things we really wanted to talk to you about today was uh, your passion for, in particular, I think it's safe to say resident education, but probably even beyond the resident moniker, probably really all surgical education, trauma education, emergency general surgery education, you're really carving out a footprint in this country um, with that passion and that, and that viewpoint. Specifically, you wrote um, an article that was published in the Canadian Journal of Surgery that sort of outlined, uh, I would say, potential national concerns. It was a comparison piece to some other places as well. Um, and I, I would say, you know, my sense, I, I don't know if you'll agree, but in talking to other folks, is you really hit a nerve there that I think a lot of us are highly concerned about. And I was wondering if you could sort of 
lead us into that topic and, and that piece in particular and, and give us your upfront thoughts. Yeah, certainly. And, um, you know, as you as you mentioned there, uh, Chad, like there's a whole cohort across the country that have been engaged in this work. And it's it's great to work with colleagues that uh, share the same passion. So it certainly is a, is a, is a big team effort um, by many of us who are engaged in this. I would say that, um, you know, coming back to my um, kind of journeys back and forth between Ontario and Alberta, I started to really recognize that there's there's major differences. And I always kind of taken for granted, uh, you know, that surgical training is surgical training. You know, it's Royal College certified. It happens in Canada. It's great uh, no matter where you are. And uh, not not to dispute that com the component, but as I kind of went back and forth to different places and had opportunities to work and train in different centers, I realized that surgical training is actually not equivalent um, across the country. Um, certainly some places have um, their strengths, but all places have their weaknesses. And how that plays out is um, actually, I think it's more tangible than I initially um, believed. And so um, starting to see, you know, the volumes and the experiences um, that some of the residents were encountering and, uh, you know, the usual thing when you ask them, like, okay, well, it's just like, you know, just do it like you've done this other operation. And they're like, well, I've never done that operation. I'm like, well, how's that possible? Um, and certainly some of that is, you know, the evolution of, trauma care in particular, but I would say surgical care. Um, but there are other components that go along with it, which uh, aren't necessarily related to anything other than um, uh, concentration and, and exposure. It started to look like, it started to appear that there's a gap here in terms of what we thought we were providing versus what we were actually providing. And whether that gap persists at all centers across the country to be determined, um, but certainly it was starting to appear to many of us who were looking at it um, and uh, it was as, as you know enough of a flag that uh, certainly you know with colleagues as Chad mentioned we, we wrote that article and and from there that's kind of been a, a stepping off point um, to do some further investigation. You, you know you touched on so much uh, material there I, I want to start and drill down on I think the nuanced narrative of uh, you know as, as you said beautifully what we expect and maybe what the public expects and maybe equally important what the Royal College in theory demands with regard to trauma care and training. Um, you know, as, as you know, and I, I say this at my own risk, one of the things that we check off on the Royal College um, uh, requirements when a resident graduates, for example, is uh, a research requirement. And I would argue that that's done in general uh, without really much evidence in most places that that resident has done really any significant research or understands any sort of research methodology, but it's sort of a checkbox and away we go. My sense, and I think a lot of our census is we're doing that with trauma care increasingly year after year with you know, some of the uh, deficits I think that, that we'll get into. What, what's your sense of what the public expects and what the Royal College expects and how that intersects with, with our reality at the current time? Yeah, so you, it's all easy questions this morning, is it? Um, uh, so, you know, um, I actually, and I think it's interesting, Chad, to, when you bring that down, to break, to break it down even further and say, what do we expect of our colleagues in some ways? And what do we expect of the profession of general surgery? because um, I think that the expectations placed on general surgeons um, to provide this care are uh, vastly different um, across the country, not just for those that work in, you know, in an actual designated trauma center um, versus a community center, but also depending on the population density, depending on the conglomeration of hospitals, depending on 
um, uh, the, the provincial organization of trauma care. So the expectations, I would say, I, I'll, I'll stand on this, that the expectations of general surgeons across the country to provide trauma care is extremely variable. And so that begets an issue of, well, what are we training our residents to be able to do? Um, and there's different expectations. I think that um, those of us who see the value of trauma care and see the value of trauma care provided by not just a subspecialist trauma surgeon, but by a general surgeon would say that they, these are core uh, components, the training that they need to learn, they need to be facile with, and they need to be able to provide um, to the public. Many others, um, would d disagree with that, I would say, and, and certainly they have with me and say that, no, th that is not a core competency of the functional practice of a general surgeon. I recognize they may say that on paper, the Royal College, but it's not. And so I do wonder how, I think there is a component of uh, a lack of shared expectations from the trainers to the trainees. And so partly I think solving the trainee problem also involves solving what we expect of general surgeons and trauma systems in Canada to help them, I think, better align with, you know, how do we train for them to practice in this paradigm? Well, I think one of the premises of your commentary that you wrote for CGS with, with Dr. Ball was that uh, there was this paper by Strumwasser and colleagues where they actually reviewed operative trauma case logs for residents in the U.S. Um, can you talk a little bit about that study and, and what they found there? Yeah, so the um, paper that you're referring to there, Amir, I think it was, I uh, saw Dr. Stromwasser present that at the WAST, and then I think it eventually got published in, I think, 2016, I have to check the exact reference. But, um, you know, we know that trauma care has been evolving over the, you know, the last you know, four decades, but in particular, um, the last two with regards to decreasing um, uh, need for operative management, you know, use of non-operative management, and then hemorrhage control adjuncts like interventional radiology and angioembolization, stenting, all this type of stuff. So um, the paper, what they examined using ACGME case logs uh, for general surgery trainees over the last, I think it was 10 or more, maybe 15 years, just looking at the number of cases that they were involved in um, over their training. And, you know, the sum total was that basically they um, saw that the current general surgery trainee, the, sorry, the current, the, the previous general surgery graduate would have received the same amount of trauma exposure and experience as a current graduate who had done a complete trauma fellowship. And so the highlight from that to me is that we can't expect our current graduates to have the same amount of trauma experience that we did in the past. So the, if our expectations haven't changed accordingly, then we have a gap here. And we don't know what that gap is as it relates to Canada, because Canada uh, at least doesn't have publicly available case logs. I think most or many of the Royal College programs probably maintain them internally, but it's certainly not in the same degree of standardization like the ACGME. And I'm not saying that case logs are the be all end all, but I think they are one important component of information when you're looking at um, how things are changing and adjusting um, that should be included uh, at the very least as some sort of performance metric to understand you know, what's changing in clinical practice, what's changing in terms of my residence exposure, and, and uh, are these changes for the good or do they need to be um, uh, looked at more closely? That was one thing that I thought was so interesting about your commentary and something that just had not occurred to me was this, idea, the, like this operative uh, log. Like, I mean, I think I thought all residents and uh, residency programs had to maintain logs. Like, I, you know, I think I thought all of us had to submit it, but I think what you're, 
what you're talking about is a little different that these are not publicly available logs where you could compare program to program. Is, is that correct? Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what, what yep. is the difference between American and Canadian programs in terms of training logs? So, yeah, so you can't, you, so um, I've not gone through it, but I think as Dr. Stormwaster illustrated, you can approach the ACGME and with appropriate approvals and protocols, et cetera, you can actually do research uh, on um, those case logs, et cetera. Um, I am on some of Royal College committees, but not the General Surgery Committee, so I'll defer to anybody who has expertise, but um, it is not my understanding that you can approach the Royal College and ask for the case logs for all 17 general surgery programs across the country. Um, that's just not going to happen. Uh, and I'm not even sure if the case logs actually get even transmitted to the Royal College Central. And so um, I, and this kind of begets the other comment I made earlier is that, um, you know, transparency has a lot of value, I think. And you see that when you, when you look at some of the programs in the States where they'll often present their numbers, et cetera. And um, I, I, transparency, I think, in a Canadian context has some potential risks in that there are differences to the different training programs. Um, and, and that's a good thing uh, because it draws applicants um, who have different interests and they can cater to it. But um, if you're looking at core experiences, et cetera, um, uh, you know, once you start to put the numbers up, et cetera, you know, people are going to draw some conclusions. And so I, I wonder how that factors into the kind of psyche and the mentality of maintaining, you know, uh, a um, uh, veneer is the wrong word, but it, uh, an appearance of um, equitable training programs across the country. Well, you know, you know, it's interesting from from my perspective, at least in my head, there's some analogies and synergies here between trauma care training and HPV related uh, topics and clinical content training. And by that, I mean, you know, the era that trained you and I would have rolled over and essentially stroked with the, con with the idea that we were uncomfortable converting a lap coli to an open coli and taking that open gallbladder out. Obviously as an HPV surgeon, I do open colis multiple times a week. It's not a big deal. But I think it's safe to say that really the whole country, and I would guess the whole continent, has moved away from that being an expectation of training. In other words, the camera can go in, if things look bad, pull the camera out and refer the patient to some HPV surgeon in a tertiary quaternary care place. I'm curious what your sense is on the trauma side of that equation. So clearly when the patient shows up in Timmins in a major car crash from the highway, you're the general surgeon, they're hypotensive, you have to deal with that. There is no ability to back out of that. At the same time, we have this significantly, as you pointed out, limited exposure um, uh, to that scenario and the ability to deal with it on one side. On the other side, we have neostable patients that really do get transferred out of smaller centers across this country every single day to quote-unquote trauma centers. Um, because our relationships are so good and those transfer agreements work so well, and it's fundamentally different than the U.S., you know, in the pre-hospital and the communication and the collegial side as well. I'm curious how those two issues, um, how you reconcile them and what you think about them. Yeah, like, and I guess it comes back to what I was getting at a little bit with um, some of my earlier comments about the organization and the expectations. Um I do. I would. I definitely would say. You know, based on the contrasting experiences that I had working in um, Alberta and uh, southwestern Ontario, that um, 
you know, there are different expectations, I think, that the providers, uh, general surgeons have for themselves. So, like, certainly if, you know, it's a car crash in Timmins or an isolated community and that person's super sick, uh, we would all hope that the, that, that general surgeon or whoever it is, that the team taking care of that patient would do whatever's needed to provide the care to that patient and then stabilize and ship out. Um, when you have... Um, um, the situation where um, the ability to ship out is easier, then um, it becomes uh, less. Uh, it becomes much more justifiable, I think, not to to provide surgical care to, to the patient. Um, and um, you know, certainly we probably can all tell stories, but you know, that was new to me to see people that really just the surgical teams that declined to provide necessary surgical care um, and issued them to other centers that were in their mind justifiably close enough that they could defer that care. So it, it does come down to that set of expectations, I think, Chad, because if you are going out into practice and your expectation is I work in hospital X and it's an hour away from trauma center, whatever, and my hospital quote unquote doesn't do trauma, I'm just not gonna do trauma. So I'm not gonna bother learning these, these skills or whatnot, or I'll get the checkbox, but I'm not internalizing what I need to know uh, because I fully expect that I'll never use these again. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough conversation, right? Because we've known for decades that, and it's clear, you know, not only in Canada, but in the US and a lot of European countries that your risk of dying, you know, for matched injuries between large urban centers and rural centers or rural places uh, is much, much higher in, in rural communities. And that can be three times higher to 10 times higher, depending on the injury you're talking about. So w whether knowingly or not, somebody who lives in a smaller uh, rural or farming place carries every day a higher risk of dying of a theoretic injury. I don't think that's something we talk about very well. And it does play into the whole sort of platform or foundational view as you're pointing out of what we need when we need it and what's reasonable yeah and i think that um the uh, you know we talk about Canadian healthcare but as certainly as you and i have discussed like there is really no such thing as Canadian healthcare there's there's province-based healthcare and so the maturity of each province with regards to its trauma system actually has i think has a big impact in terms of what those people training and uh, practicing in that province have for a set of expectations in terms of what they need to provide and to learn about trauma care. Um, I, I do think that that's part of the picture and, and that kind of speaks to the bigger pictures when you're trying to figure out, you know, from a rural college perspective, like what are we, what are we training our grads to do and where, what are you expecting them to do when they go out and practice in the Canadian context? You have to have an understanding of what that Canadian context is, in my opinion. I have a question for both of you. Like, I, I think this is pretty neat to have both of you who are trauma surgeons on the line. So I think this can be a really rich discussion. We have, we can clearly talk about this. And I think any, anyone who's, who's worked in the Canadian general, you know, in the Canadian healthcare system recognizes these problems that you're talking about. That there's variability in care. Ta having just you know laid that as a framework and as a ground fact, what is it that you both think that residents should know coming out of general surgery residency, or is that not a fair question? Is that you know, should we make that a context specific uh, question? In other words, you know maybe it shouldn't be an expectation that everybody knows the same things, but really once you know where you're going to practice. 
that's when it becomes clear that, you know, there should be these standards that people should know. And maybe people have to come back and do more training. Uh, and of course, uh, again, easy questions for both of you first thing in the morning. But <laughs> I, I'm wondering, do you what, what are your both of your thoughts about what is it that residents should know coming out of general surgery training? Maybe we'll start with you, Dr. Angles. Um, sure. Um, well, I think that if you look at the Royal College paradigm, you know, it is that, you know, five years and you come out as a, arguably an omnipotent or pluripotent um, general surgeon. This was probably before my time of training, but I think close enough, I think there was a bit of an existential discussion across the country about whether or not general surgery should be migrated to like a four-year core program and then a two-year subspecialization in, in some of the various subspecialties you know, the context of what people had either selected or, or can identified as what, where they're going to be from a job market perspective. Or, uh, so I think if we are embracing the, par- if we're still going with the paradigm that after five years, you should be a pluripotent general surgeon able to do anything from breast surgery to, you know, uh, uh, reasonable hepatobiliary to trauma surgery to, to colorectal EPR, whatever it is, um, that we have to train to that. Um, and so you know, as it pertains to the trauma specific competencies, and this is an ongoing area of research with uh, others in the field, like um, Brett Mader in Edmonton, who's leading uh, some projects in this, um, trying to figure out, you know, what is that core group of skills that um, must be imparted and, and general surgeon must come out with. And it's, it's probably going to come down to resuscitative and hemorrhage control skills, um, uh, most likely, uh, uh, because that, that would at least keep the patient alive and, and the ability to either be uh, transferred out or have help transferred in. Um, maybe I'll stop there and let uh, Chad have some airways of time there. No, I don't think I have a lot more to add, Paul. Like, you know, I would agree entirely with you. It's it's going to be damage control scenarios uh, via laparotomies, via tourniquets, um, maybe even, you know, intravascular shunts is potentially pushing it, but uh, balloon work, just just all hemorrhage control, whether that's in the torso or the neck or the extremities. I'll add on to that um, because what you've outlined, I completely agree with. And then I would say that, and I think you'll agree with this, those skills are actually the ones that I don't think are all that transferable from elective surgical practice. I, I don't think that, um, you know, putting in shunts is something you're going to get a lot out of your elective surgical practice. I don't think that damage control, packing the abdomen, et cetera, is something you can get out of doing a, a laparotomy for XYZ uh, cancer um, in your elective um, rotations or, or scheduled care rotations on colorectal HPV, et cetera. I, I would say that those are the skills that you actually need to have done. Um, and so that begets back to, I guess, my concern is that we need to have the residents uh, achieving exposure in these exact cases, not just things that are comparable. I do think that th- they need to have actual, you know, trauma laparotomies where they pack the abdomen and dealt with difficult hemorrhage. Um, and then certainly, if we're not able to achieve that with clinical exposure, we need to think about uh, adjunctive um, medical educational uh, opportunities, you know, uh, t- tissue hemorrhage control simulation, and this type of thing. Uh, and as we know, you, you lead a nice course, and, and I'm involved with the American College suite of courses. There's lots of other opportunities to help augment that. But I, my opinion is at its core... I think it's unreasonable to expect a general surgeon to be able to, to pack an abdomen and do damage control surgery if they've never done one. And some of the research that we're doing demonstrates that there are graduates across the country who are coming out who have never done that.
So, you know, I think I think one thing, one comment I'll make, and I'm curious your thoughts, Dr. Angles, you know, we're, we're, we've really pushed in Canada towards a competency by, by design type uh, residency program and residency training paradigm. Um, but one of my, my lingering kind of doubts, and maybe I'm like uh, one of those holdovers and someone just needs to get, get with the program. But you know, I mean, one of my kind of concerns about CBME is just that it's very hard to agree on what a graduating resident should be able to do. Like, I think, you know, if I pulled trauma surgeons potentially across the country and then I pulled general surgeons, I think you might get a different set of answers as to what people would expect uh, to be able to do from a trauma perspective. Certainly I can say from a colorectal perspective, it's kind of interesting, right? Like we have this idea that people should be able to do X, Y, Z colorectal thing, but is that really fair in 2022? And so I'm, I'm a little bit curious what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, is CBME really, is that something that we can really quantify as to what people should be able to do, especially when we're not always sure for ourselves what people should be able to do? And the second part of that question that's sort of related is that, you know, when we know that perhaps you aren't going to find those opportunities for learning in elective surgery, should we be sending residents to centers where they will get that exposure, like uh, perhaps high volume centers in Canada, or perhaps more accurately, high volume centers in the U.S.? I don't want to sound like a, um, a dinosaur. Um, and I think that there's lots of very uh, seeing CB, CBME roll out in our institution, I, I actually think there's a lot of um, positives and there's going to be a lot of benefits. But I don't think that, you know, the, we've landed on the bullseye yet for what some of these targets are for some of these skills. Um, you know, I, you know, let's take a, a lab, Coley. Okay, sure, no problem. Like, mass, they can, I, I'll sign them off as independent for, you know, during the, the you know, the, the, the unremarkable gallbladder without any inflammation, et cetera. But, you know, at what point am I going to sign them off and say they're independent when they're doing a hot gallbladder? I, I, I don't know. Like, I have to see that. And I'm not sure if a, a, a number can be a priori ascribed to that. I, I guess you can try it and see. But there is that gestalt. Um, and that was kind of the thing that, you know, the people who trained us, you know, relied upon. And, and no doubt there's problems with the that uh, approach um, when it comes, I think the problems really come down to when you have um, residents who are not performing at the level of expectation and you have performance issues. And so it's harder to quantify and it's harder to um, focus on how to get them to improve. I, I don't think it is a problem when, when you have a high performing one. And then, so the CBME, I think will help bring up the floor, uh, so to speak, if I can use that term. Uh, I'm not sure if it necessarily is going to make it all that much more easier to identify the um, kind of the, 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 the um, uh, minimal competency. I, I think that if we are going to agree that residents need to obtain competency in certain fields, whatever that is, if they're not able to achieve it, given the clinical milieu of their home training program, then yeah. And so that it comes back to my um, point earlier is that I actually think that being transparent about what the clinical milieu is of the training programs and what residents can be anticipated to be exposed to, I actually think is helpful because it'll identify the weaknesses that each program has, because every program has weaknesses, and then uh, identify the programs that have strengths and probably 
there could be um, maybe overall better training for our general surgery trainees if we adopted a more regional collaborative approach to training as opposed to a single city or single center uh, type of training approach. The, the other thing I, I just want to add to that is uh, you uh, mentioned the, the colorectal, which I think that you're in the process of. It, it is also, I find a different, um, interesting paradigm when now the number of surgical subspecialties by the Royal College um, that exists. So like now we've got, you know, so vascular is on its own now, fair enough, but um, colorectal, surgical oncology, and then actually trauma general surgery, just uh, we just developed a practice eligibility route as an AFC. So it's actually a Royal College um, accreditation now. So as we develop all of these um, subspecialty uh, accreditations, what belongs in those fellowship uh, uh, subspecialty accreditations and uh, and what what skill sets rather, and then what skill sets belong in core general surgery? Okay. To me, I think that's it's, it's a way that that existential question about what is general surgery in 2022 or what is general surgery going to be in 2030. In my mind, there's sort of three domains to this. The the first is uh, really surrounds the the structure of training, as as you guys have beautifully talked about. And, and you're right. Like if you look at the American Board of Surgery, it seems clear that they're going to go to a three plus two model for general surgery. Uh, in the U.S. in the near future. So three years of core training. And then if you're going to go into a quote-unquote community practice, that's a two-year HPV, two-year a trauma, two-year. It's all, it's all different. And I, there's certainly a, um, intrigue and potentially really neat things, I think, that could come out of that. You have to try it to really know if it works. But uh, that's interesting. But you guys have also talked beautifully about you know, defining expectations and requirements and, and the importance of that and probably the gray nebulous nature of, of it in its current state. But, you know, it seems like people are doing that work and it's coming. The third thing though, I think is less um, quantitative and certainly uh, on the softer science side, which I think that, you know, most of us do this job with an inherent, I hope, humility and genuine concern for the patient. And I remember uh, when I was in the U.S. doing my fellowships, there was a number of uh, really iconic American surgeons that talked about the fear. And, and they said that the idea that it really is that the fear is something that <clears throat> most of us have, the fear of doing something bad to a patient. And so that will drive a lot of our behavior and a lot of our search or quest for knowledge and training. And I think to specific examples that, you know, you would know well, Amir. So uh, we've had Alex Poole, who's been a surgeon at Whitehorse for 20 years and came through Calgary on the podcast talking about his hypothermia algorithms. But what's one of the things that's amazing about Alex is that, you know, when he needed more HPV training, he came back to Calgary and hung out for a few months and did a bunch of complex cases with us. When he felt he needed neurosurgical or gynecologic or obstetrical training, he dropped into Vancouver or he dropped into Edmonton and did a bunch of that. It's the same sort of model that, you know, Paul and I see around us all the time for our military surgeons who, before they go stay over to Afghanistan, are in learning or relearning craniectomy, craniotomy, decompressions, as an example. So I, I, I think probably, I, I, I like to think that there's a certain uh, percentage, and hopefully that's a, a large percentage of graduates who say, I'm going to go work in Lethbridge, Alberta. I'm going to go work in uh, Fort McMurray or Timmins or Williams Lake. And I need to buff up on my trauma skills. Where can I go and do that? And, and probably that internal drive is more powerful than saying, 
you know, person X needs to go to Atlanta or Memphis to do a high volume month. Although those are incredibly valuable experiences that'll be life-changing. Um, but I'm not sure how you, how you make that a mandatory thing as opposed to appealing to, you know, the, the concept of, of uh, internal drive and, and the fear in general. Yeah. I, I, so I would echo that, Chad. And I think that um, everyone wants to do well for their patients. And so um, if they know what their expect, what, if they know what their expectations is, are rather, then they very much um, almost certainly are going to rise to them um, and how we, how we could um, help provide those kind of uh, stepping stones to get there. I think that there, there's some work to be done there, but um, you've outlined um, some very good examples, but certainly I think once people know what the expectation is, I think the, the drive and the, the, the fear, so to speak, will um, push them towards that. And that's where I, I guess, you know, just to bring it back to some of the early stuff, like I, I do think it's, it's about setting that expectation, right? Like when people come out, like what do they think they're going to be expected to do? And so, um, relating specifically to trauma care, if it's just, you know, you got to tick the box and that's it. And then I'll go on my way and I'm graduate. That's not going to be, that's not going to generate the fear that goes along with, Hey, there's a really bad trauma downstairs and I haven't seen that case and I need to come in and see that case. Um, so just to close the loop on that, the, the fear thing is interesting. Actually, it exists in the law enforcement as well. Uh, they, they, they very much talk about like harnessing fear uh, as a powerful uh, motivator and, a, and a, a positive force in terms of um, training performance and stuff. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating uh, uh, area in general, uh, psychologically across a lot of high intensity jobs. You're totally right, Paul. I was wondering if we could switch gears just a little bit here. And, and I don't want to put you on the spot. And I don't want you to out uh, what's coming down the pipeline. But uh, I will say that you're, you're leading and doing some amazing uh, national sort of coast-to-coast work on the, um, a lot of what we talked about, the expectations, but more importantly, probably the, the actual description of what's going on across training trauma centers in this country with regard to resident trauma, training exposure, and teaching. Can you give us a little, a little, uh, a little preview, a little trailer of, of maybe what you found and what your thirty thousand foot thoughts are so far? Yeah, for sure. So um, I think you're uh, alluding to the uh, trauma recon study um, that uh, we've been um, working with uh, Canucks uh, to um, to perform, and um, it's basically um, doing a, a more or less an environmental scan, uh, participating uh, trauma center across the country. Um, we don't have every center participating. We, we have a very good representation um, from various provinces. And looking at the uh, both formal and informal educational exposures reg- regarding trauma care, um, uh, trauma education during the residency, as well as more objective measures such as um, uh, trauma operative case logs. And so um, we have our the data and uh, we're in the process of uh, analyzing it you know it's actually quite large which is great um and we're hoping that we'll be able to start to share that in a public format um in the near future um and the overall thrust like you said chad is uh, you know and i really believe that you know in order to know where we where we're going to go we need to know where we are um and i think this will help um shed that light and demonstrate where we are. And I, and I think that um, uh, for those of us, you know, like yourself and myself and, and Amir and others who I think have some insight into this are probably not going to be 
as surprised, but we're still going to be disappointed, I, I think, in what we see um, with the results. Um, it is interesting when you start to look through some of this, there's certainly some uh, residents that have very massive exposures. And then there's people that, you know, may not have actually been exposed to um, trauma operations during their, their training. Um, and that's not even speaking about what their involvement as a learner was with the case. Um, so certainly there's limitations with the, with the study um, looking at presence in the operating theater for trauma operations. Um, and you can think of all the operations that you're present for as a trainee that, yeah, you take the box because you were there, but what did you actually do or what did you learn? Um, and so that's going to be another area uh, of study. And we've seen that. It's interesting in other research where you look at um, uh, resident reported um, operative role versus staff reported operative role of the resident. And um, there's often significant discordance between those. And so how that all factors into CABME and everything else uh, for people with bigger brains to uh, to decide. But we really are excited about this. We're really hoping that um, we'll be able to, to show everyone at least where we stand. And so there's no ambiguity about where we stand and then discuss about, is this the right place for us in Canada? And if not, um, what do we need to do to, to make things uh, better? And certainly the idea was that in the context of CBME, it's ripe to understand where we are um, because we are gonna make, need to make adjustments with CBME and then hopefully this will help inform that. Yeah, I love that <laughs> that comment. Oh, I did that operation. And then, you know, the staff leaves the room and go, oh, wait a second. I don't know. Did I actually do that operation? <laughs> it seems a lot I harder always, than before. <laughs> I always ask the resident, they're like, they're like, yeah, I did the operation. I'm like, well, who's holding the, the cautery? They're like, well, I was. I'm like, well, you didn't do the operation then. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, um, I, I'm curious your thoughts on sort of training courses, uh, and there are a variety of different ones. I know you're, you've been involved in, in designing and running uh, courses because I've, I've, I've done courses with you as, as, uh, as my instructor. So uh, I know you have a pretty good sense of what the courses are like out there for, for residents and, and, in fact, for practicing surgeons. What's your sense of how you know, courses or simulations fits into an overall training paradigm uh, for Canadian general surgery residents? So my, this is just my personal opinion, obviously, uh, I think it's, I think it's going to be integral. I think it's going to be absolutely necessary to have, um, to make use of uh, courses, whether they be surgical courses or, or, or crisis resource management courses or other things. But I think that type of paradigm of um, simulation uh, in education, I think is, is, it, it need, I think it needs to be expanded more than it is. I mean, my um, uh, my vision would be that you know you come to work and uh, you know one out of every ten days you just show up and they tell you you're doing simulation today uh, and you're gonna go and you're gonna work in whatever it is a hemorrhage control lab or you're gonna work in a CRM high fidelity lab or you're gonna do mock trauma codes on a pregnant patients or or whatever it is these kind of rare events but you know that literally like it might be like one out of ten days when you come to work you're gonna be doing simulation um, and that's because we're not going to have the same clinical exposure to all these rare and high stakes events that we could count on with just living in the hospital. And, and that's totally fair. I'm not saying to go back to that, but we do need to compensate for the lack of exposure that goes along with that. And so that's what I would envision. And, and I would say that the, the, the nice thing is that there's actually a lot of really great um, courses out there. And um, I think that we really should move them into uh, the core of residency education and look for ways that we can 
uh, collaborate amongst institutions um, to make them more cost effective as well as to share the expertise that many of the institutions have developed in some of these areas. Can you talk a little bit about some specific courses and and obviously there's lots of courses out there and you know just because just the disclaimer that if you haven't mentioned something that doesn't mean that's not necessarily a good course but are there some courses that really stand out to you as being fantastic courses for residents and for that matter uh, attending surgeons to take uh, to brush up on their trauma operative skills like you know Adam or Acid or what what are some courses that stand out to you? Yeah, so, and full disclosure, uh, I am a member of the SUTI for American College of Surgeons, and I'm also an instructor for DSTC, um, but I would endorse um, both the, the DSTC course, um, which is run by, uh, not the American College, but IATSIC, um, uh, which has a com- combination of didactic as well as a, a hemorrhage control lab component, and um, ADAM, um, which we teach here in Hamilton, um, as uh, similarly, um, uh, some didactic component and then a live um, hemorrhage control lab component. And then the asset course, which is a, a cadaveric based uh, dissection course. Uh, all I would say all three of those have their strengths. And um, I would say overall, I think they're all complementary. Certainly there is some overlap of content, um, but each course has something individual and special that it offers. And uh, for anybody uh, who's going to be practicing trauma care, not necessarily trauma surgery, but like is going to be responsible for providing operative trauma care, I would highly endorse taking all three of those. I don't think that you would lose out by taking those. Um, I mean, sometimes you hear people say, oh, you know, these courses are expensive. And you say, well, you know, it's an investment in your education. So I think it's a worthwhile investment. And then the other one would be, um, Chad mentioned balloon skills and things is, uh, you know, the, the best course um, uh, available, if that's something that uh, you're going to be doing. And I think that, um, you know, where Reboa fits and lands in the Canadian trauma care paradigm is still to be determined. But certainly, I think having some facility with um, basic endovascular uh, idea, access wires, um, catheters, I think is good uh, for a general surgeon um, graduating in 2022. Yeah, I think those are some really great courses. And we'll link, of course, uh, to those courses in our show notes. Uh, we're also hopefully going to have uh, some tasters from um, Dr. Ball's hemorrhage control course. Uh, we're, we're hopefully going to have Dr. Scott Gamora again back on our show uh, to talk about control of laparoscopic bleeding because uh, he does give a great, um, great talk on that as well. So just for our listeners to stay tuned. This has been a really fascinating discussion about resident education and trauma care in, in Canada. I, I wanted to also just briefly ask you about the T-Spike project, because I think that's another fascinating uh, bit of work that you've done uh, in, in, uh, in Ontario to develop, uh, you know, this trauma system. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Oh, yeah, <laughs> um, certainly. So um, the T-Spike, so, so, okay, so the, the background is that um, most, I don't know if this would be surprising people or not, uh, certainly not to those in Ontario, but there actually is no coordinated uh, trauma system, uh, provincial trauma system in Ontario, um, which is obviously paradoxical, it being the probably the oldest and largest uh, province. Um, but be that as it is, be that as it may, um, there has been some work over the last number of years, last five years, to create some what's called regional trauma networks. And there is some ongoing work to help um, roll out, you know, more of an inclusive trauma system, such as uh, that that exists in Nova Scotia, Alberta, BC. So one of the things that we were looking at um, in our particular area, regional trauma network, is 
you know, what happens, what is the burden of injury, basically? What is the burden of injury and what is the care provided in our catchment area? Um, so we have a catchment area of about 2.5 million people, and that's comprised of 22 separate hospitals, and we're the um, ministry-designated lead trauma hospital for that region. And so we wanted to see if we could actually figure out what that burden of injury is, um, because that's going to help uh, inform system level changes um, that we could in terms of rolling out a more inclusive trauma system and, and, and optimizing, you know, where patients go, where they need to go, you know, over triage, under triage, all this type of stuff. And um, so we tried to put all those pieces together and you can think about all the different data elements that exist uh, pre-hospital, the receiving hospital, the transporting ambulance group, maybe that is rotary uh, wing, maybe that's uh, ground, and then um, lead trauma hospital. And um, all of these systems are not related, uh, unlike some of the other provinces. And so you've got ambulance, nine different ambulance systems, you've got 22 hospital systems, you've got Orange, you've got the critical, which is um, like rapid in Alberta, um, then you've got the, the trauma registry. And so we tried to actually put these all together and see what we could map out. Um, and that was kind of the, the, the study methodology that we kind of published is that it is possible, but not 100%. And it does come down to the irony of um, we don't have any way to recognize a trauma patient from time of injury, you know, through their healthcare journey, at least in Ontario. Um, I, I'm hoping that you guys have something better in, in BC and Alberta. And I know that American College was discussing kind of some really interesting proposals about how you could do that when you know, kind of slap on a universal identifier when you see someone in the scene and that universal identifier gets propagated through the system. But it is interesting because, you know, as a, I, I like to have a systems look at it. And so you basically are identifying that when it comes down to managing your trauma system, you're managing your trauma healthcare system, you actually have a very poor idea of what we're providing, by whom and where. And certainly, even if we have that idea, we have a very poor idea of what we need to change to improve it. And so that's my overall interest is trying to improve the system um, to make it function better for our patients as well as the providers. The last question is, you know, that we try and ask a lot of our guests uh, sort of a fun one, and it's it's a bit of our closer. And it, it very simply is if you were going to go back and talk to your younger self at some point along in your training, uh, what advice would you would you give yourself in retrospect? Life kind of comes in various phases. And usually once you leave one, not usually, once you leave one, you, you can't go back. So no matter what phase you're in, recognize that you're never going to have this phase again. So try to enjoy it. And if it's not something that's enjoyable, try to get as much out of it because it will change. It will pass. And once you uh, go forward, you know, it's like those parking garages with the spikes, like you, you can't go back in. Um, and so just enjoy each part of that life as it, as it goes forward, um, because uh, it's a one-way journey. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge.